Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Power can go to even the most well-meaning heads. And with power, not to sound completely cliche, comes great responsibility. On December 15, 1889, a man was born who would die at the hands of three men with an infinite amount of unchecked power. A murder that, in the aftermath, changed the way private policing was handled in the state of Pennsylvania. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. John Borkowski, born December 15, 1889 in Poland, immigrated to the United States in 1906, where he met and married fellow Polish immigrant Sofia Blusik, who helped him to welcome four children into their family. John was both a union employee at the Pittsburgh Coal Company's Montour Mine No. 9 in McAdams, Pennsylvania, and worked at his rented farm in his off hours in hopes that someday he could leave the dangerous mines and live out the rest of his life peacefully living off the land. That dream, however, would never come to fruition. On the evening of February 9, 1929, John went to his mother-in-law's home where he encountered two private officers employed by the Pittsburgh Coal Company named Harold Watts and Frank Slapicus. According to the witness statements, Officer Harold Watts suddenly lunged at John in an unprovoked attack that left him with lacerations on his left cheek, two broken ribs, a fractured nose, and about five to six head wounds. According to the original officers and later the defense, 
John Prokoski attempted to stab Officer Watts prior to his brutal beating. Later, after being taken back to the police barracks, a third officer, a Lieutenant Walter Lister, beat John Barkowski with a strap over the course of about four hours while he lay semi-conscious on the floor. They twisted his ears until he cried out, grabbed and turned his broken nose until he passed out, beat him in the chest with a poker until it bent, straightened it out, and started again. Kicked him, hit him with brass knuckles, and slapped him in the arms, legs, and neck with a blackjack. All the while yelling out, if you don't admit you stabbed our man, you hunky, we'll kill you. According to the doctor who ascertained John's initial injuries, the whole time he was being tortured, John kept trying to say something to the officers. He warned Lieutenant Lister a number of times to stop the beatings before it was too late. The following day, February 10th, after being brought into the hospital pulseless and in critical condition, John Borkowski succumbed to his extensive beating at the local hospital. According to the doctor who attempted to treat him at the hospital, several of John's ribs were fractured, as was his head. He was covered in bruises and blood, some of which poured from his mouth. His eyes were glassy, there was a depression in his head, and the left side of his chest was caved in. His lung eventually collapsed, he suffered from severe shock, and his intestinal tract was paralyzed. The case, with as many witnesses as it had, indicating the officer's cruelty, seemed like a pretty open and shut one. However, the fence argued during the trial that Harold Watts had been cut by John Prokoski just before the scuffle, forcing the officer to respond by striking the miner to the ground with his gun. The pair struggled over the hard frozen ground and, according to their lawyers, this is when John acquired his life-threatening injuries. Despite how illogical it all seemed, the jury acquitted Harold Watts, Frank Slipikis, and Walter Lister of the murder after 18 hours of deliberation. According to the media reports, when the jury read out their decision, the judge turned white and said in disbelief, Gentlemen of the jury, you say you find the defendant not guilty? To which they responded in the positive. The room was struck with a stunned silence as tears rolled down Sofia Barkowski's cheeks. When the prosecutor finally caught his breath, he proclaimed, This is the most shocking miscarriage of justice in the history of this or any other country. I am glad the verdict is not on my conscience. After the next court session, two days after the verdict, District Attorney Samuel H. Hardiner went before the judge and moved to have the court discharge the jury from further services, citing their incompetence and lack of moral stamina. The judge replied, quote, Your suggestion is altogether proper. I was never more surprised in my life. It seems to me that nothing less than second-degree verdicts should have been returned against Lister and Watts, although the evidence may have justified such a verdict for Slipikis. I quite agree with you that the jurors were not competent and were without moral stamina. Two of the men, later one, were found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. John's widow was paid $13,500 by the Pittsburgh Coal Company as compensation for the death of her husband at the hands of their unchecked officers. While the case stunned anyone who heard the details, violence and outrage rang out all around the city, with many calling for the abolition of the coal police as a whole. 
a force that was allowed to roam around the city, not just on the properties of the coal company, with the same powers as a normal policeman of a first-class city, but with far less regulation. In response to the outrage, a bill called the Masmano Measure was amended to grant changes that would, hopefully, calm the crowds of protesters. With this new measure, the activities of the coal police were restricted to just the properties owned by the coal company, except when Guardian payrolls. They were required to bring all prisoners before a magistrate in order to be committed, did not allow them to hold any other governmental jobs, and limited applicants to citizens of the U.S. who were endorsed by three reputable citizens, only one of whom could be an employee of the coal mines. This, for a moment, quieted the protests. That was until some of the Pittsburgh newspapers found out that the Musmano bill was being allowed to die in the committee and was beyond the help of any normal channels, meaning it was basically a placating band-aid to quiet the outraged public. So the vigilance picked up once again, and with the help of the press, citizens voiced their demands that the bill must be made into a law. The members of the Senate panicked at their insistence and hastily reported the bill out, while simultaneously, on the orders of the political overlords, the Mansfield bill, which was basically the opposite of the Musmano bill, was revived in the House committee. Both measures were passed and sent to the governor for approval. He signed the Mansfield bill and quickly left on a fishing trip to avoid the fallout. Michael Musmano, the man whose name was carried on the bill to help restrict the coal police, was outraged by John Burkowski's murder. In addition to trying to abolish the coal police force altogether, Michael published a story about the case in which he blended John's identity with a semi-legendary Polish coal mining figure. When a new governor took office, he essentially restricted private policing to the point of near extinction and refused to fund nor renew any of their state commissions. The coal and iron police officially ceased to exist by 1935. Many researchers acknowledge the role John's murder and its direct reaction played in the demise of the coal and iron police meaning his death, though devastating, changed the lives of many men and women in the future. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 16th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.